Series 4 was recorded in autumn 2019. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome back to the fourth series of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast with me, Simon Stevens. I first met the playwright, poet, performer, presenter, screenwriter, anthologist and librettist Sabrina Mafuz in the Houses of Parliament. In 2015, we'd been invited by the theatre company Payne's Plough to talk about the political nature of and political representation in British playwriting. It was a remarkable night which lingers in my head, predominantly for that meeting and a rather daunting oil painting of former Tory party Home Secretary Michael Howard. Four and a half years later, I was thrilled by the energy and intelligence of her Royal Court debut show, the genre-obliterating dramatic lecture, A History of Water in the Middle East. I've seen few shows in the past 12 months that more trippingly illustrated the political potential we were talking about on that odd night. The show marked her final production of a decade of quite extraordinary creative energy. She's been credited with writing and producing up to 20 plays in the last 10 years. It's genuinely hard to keep count. Her first play, 2011's Dry Ice, was directed by David Schwimmer at the Underbelly Edinburgh before moving to the Bush Theatre. Her 2013 play, Clean, won the Herald Angel Award when it played at the Traverse Edinburgh before moving off-Broadway. The following year's Chef was shortlisted for the Carol Tombor Award after being staged in the Brighton Fringe and at the Soho Theatre. Payne's Plough produced the Steffa Driscoll, directed with a bit of luck at a sellout run at the Camden Roundhouse. Quite uniquely, amongst all the writers I've spoken to in these conversations, she's had a play performed at Wembley Stadium, her history of women's football co-written with Holly McNeish, Offside. She's written for NT Connections, adapted Mallory Blackman's celebrated Noughts and Crosses for Pilot Theatre and was one of the writers of the Vendor Song Project here at the court last year. She's compiled anthologies of British Muslim women's writing, 2017's The Things I Would Tell You and Considerations of Working Class Identity, Smashing It, published this autumn in 2019. She wrote beautifully in Nikesh Shukla's collection The Good Immigrant. She's published a novel as well as several celebrated collections of poetry, originated television, written a libretto for the Royal Opera House and worked and written about her working life in Mayfair strip clubs and the Ministry of Defence alike. Her failed attempt to get top-secret security clearance while working at the MOD runs like a spine through a history of water in the Middle East. From this spine, she reaches outward to interrogate her own identities as a South London-born Muslim woman of Egyptian heritage, as well as lacerate the culpability of the British government in the last 150 years of political turmoil, economic instability and bloodshed in the part of the world that her family came from. It was a remarkable show, defined by a pulsing musical score by Kareem Samara. With operatic counterpoint by Laura Hanna, it managed to both explore and explain British imperialism and Mafuz's place within it. Mafuz is a compelling performer, passionate and witty and savage and self-deprecating by turn. 
Her performance and her show seemed emblematic of an energy that has driven one of the most dizzyingly prolific and formerly surprising careers in contemporary British theatre. Sabrina Mafuz, welcome to the world. <laughs> thank you. Oh, I might have a little, might have a little sob. <laughs> don't, don't sob. Quite emotional. It's a time of year, time of month. <laughs> Start well. You know, this is the, the, our first conversation of 2020. Yes. This series goes out with the introduction that recorded in 2019. Oh. But it's going out in 2020. The uh, and you know that newness is is quite an emotional state, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a fascinating thing to carry. It's quite a lot, to... a lot of pressure. <laughs> It's quite an interesting thing to carry into a consideration of one's past at the time of a new decade as yeah. well. Such a cheerful and optimistic decade to come. <laughs> yeah, well, that is, it is it is quite optimistic how people do continue to be hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever there's a, yeah. you know, it's just a made-up point of time, isn't it, really, New Year? But it, it does enable people to sort of leave not leave it all behind but just to go forward with a sense of positivity when there's absolutely nothing that has indicated that they should <laughs> although do you know i think you're completely right and there's the the, the calendar is an arbitrary thing an arbitrary creation but especially in uh this part of the planet when when the seasons continue to have a kind of like physical element mm. you know the survival of the shortest day you get through the shortest day and then the light comes back. I think it has a kind of innate optimism to it. Yeah. That somewhere we feel in our bodies, maybe. The uh, I've never started a podcast conversation. <laughs> well, I always start with the same question, which I'm going to hurriedly recover right, go, by go. going back to, which was uh, to ask you when was the first time you went to the theatre? Um, I think that the first... No, I know. The first time I went to the theatre, I don't think it counts as an actual theatre, but in terms of um, an encounter with theatre, rather than being inside the theatre, yeah. is um, plays that I'd done at school. So, um, I mean, plays used very loosely, as, <laughs> I, as I generally still use the term in all my work. <laughs> um, there's like every rehearsal room, is it really a play? I'm not sure we could call this a play. Um, so I'm just bringing that from my primary school days. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think when I was like six, I was cast as um, Mary in the school nativity play. and um, It's a big role. It's a big role and I was, I liked the storytelling of it all, but um, there was one of the directions um, was that the boy playing Joseph had to put his arm around my shoulder. And this freaked me out so much that um, I pulled out of doing the role, but I wouldn't tell anybody why. I just like told my mum that I didn't want to do it and I was too scared. And so that's what she relates to the teacher and then somebody else replaced me. And I never told anybody it was because like I just didn't want him to put his arm over my shoulder, which, um, you know, I guess uh, so, sort of was happening across the world of acting and <laughs> I was not even aware. Um, A chilling foreshadow <laughs> of the Me Too moment. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, then, and then I did a couple of other plays where I got to just um, stand in the, in the corner 
on my own delivering <laughs> delivering narration which again was um sort of what i ended up doing in school in, in school yeah this yeah. was all in primary school where did you go to primary school um i went to primary school partly in um, sutton and partly in cairo um and in cairo i did taming of the shrew when i was like eight <laughs> um and then i did at high school i went to high school in sutton and i did um like loads of plays there and then I think probably the first time I went to the actual theatre was maybe like when I was about 11 or something and it would have been a musical maybe right. Starlight Express but I'm in not London. sure in London yeah yeah and then do you have memories of seeing Starlight Express yeah I remember that um I was a very early smoker um <laughs> and I remember the character with the ashtrays she had like ashtrays as shoulder pads or something um yeah, and I remember being like, oh, wow, I see, smoking is so cool. <laughs> and um, it just encouraged me, really, to to keep it up at that young age. And, um, you were smoking by the time you were 11? Yeah. That's quite badass. I know, it's terrible, isn't yeah. it? So Tell me about the movement from London to Cairo. What, were you, what, 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 what initiated that? What, what brought that about? Why were you going back and forth from Sutton to Cairo? Because Sutton is just, I mean, before, <laughs> before phone shop existed, Sutton, right. Sutton didn't really exist, did it? But phone shop gave it a great um, great point on the map. Thanks Can I be shop. a total knob and ask exactly where Sutton is? South London, right? Yeah, South London, South, like outskirts of South London. Is it, zone, so, is it in a zone? Is it zone six or something? Or? Yeah, so I think it's maybe zone five. But, right. I mean, I lived a little bit, I lived in zone four because oh. it was like a little bit further in than that. Um <laughs> And I also lived in like Putney and I lived in um, Lewisham as well. So yeah. it just moved about a lot. Yeah. Um, my dad's from Cairo yeah. and we were just like trying out different things. My mum had like worked for uh, as a secretary for oil company since she was like 14. So she was just used to moving around all over the place and had met my dad when she was working in Cairo. Right. Um, so their sort of default way of living was just to be moving around really so that didn't stop much when I was little yeah. um, did you enjoy that yeah I, I mean I didn't really think about it because I just now that I look back I realize that's probably why I read so many books because um, my mum's always like you know it was amazing traveling with you we'd do these long missions because my family from all over the world and the ones here in the UK live all over the UK so we'd just be constantly on these missions everywhere in cars on ferries boats planes trains however we were getting wherever we were going yeah. and i would just read the whole time and she said you know all i'd need is to take you some snacks and that was it there's no there's no problem with you what at you all reading? compared to like my reading? my brother and sister were less Sorry. enthusiastic um so what was i reading absolutely anything like literally anything i used to my mum's book collection was Danielle Steele and like Jackie Collins yeah. and so I'd read those at like eight which looking back was also <laughs> a highly dubious entry into the world of relationships <laughs> <laughs> and expectations no wonder you objected to the to Joseph's arm around your shoulder yeah exactly exactly, exactly. I knew it <laughs> I know your game, Joseph. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, poor Joseph. He had no idea. 
Oh my gosh, that is definitely what was happening. Um, and also like Sweet Valley High and Babysitters Club, those like right. long series. Yeah. I really loved the serial books where, you know, you could just read like 25 books around the same characters. Yeah. Um, and, and follow them and I think that's probably maybe why a lot of my generation love um, long box sets well right. all people love bo- long yeah. box sets but you know maybe that's seems part really of resonated what with kind that generation of, yeah, in the 20s yeah just needing to yeah to, to follow those characters for a long time I mean that mm. was like years that I was reading those for so you like really grow up with them um, and then yeah just just all sorts of things just everything yeah yeah. Were you writing as well? Yeah, I used to write all the time, stories, um, and then uh, just have like exercise books that I'd just write stories in constantly. Right. Yeah. Um, and sometimes record them on little radio. On like a little tape recorder? Yeah. Oh, I used to love doing that. So fun. <laughs> well, you get play record at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sell a tape over the, the tape. Oh, man. But yeah. Yeah. So what were you recording? Were you, were you acting out the voices of the characters that you were writing? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I was doing that. And yeah. I was also doing like random competitions and stuff for myself because <laughs> no one else was listening, obviously. Um, so I don't know. I'd just do it as if it was a radio show, but with stories that I would then read. And then also That's do so like brilliant. a weather report or something. That's so, <laughs> <laughs> That's so brilliant. That's so brilliant. I used to do the same. I used to do football commentaries on imaginary football matches that weren't really happening. <laughs> that would a, a end kind of like eleven nine. Oh, nice! <laughs> oh my gosh, that was a It'd long just one. Be me in my bedroom, just talking into the tape recorder, and then you, my mum and dad, would call upstairs, and it had ruined the. <laughs> <laughs> ruined the fact that you weren't yeah, really. That doesn't happen on Five Live. You don't... <laughs> well, that I don't vivid know. imaginary life is yeah, really yeah. is really fundamental. I think. Definitely. I mean, all kids have it. I mean, it, it always. I always found it so weird that, like, on X Factor and stuff, they, they would constantly introduce contestants. Like, and when they were small, they always used to sing songs. And I was like, well, who <laughs> didn't used to sing songs? Like, every kid sang songs, surely. And then they'd have a like home video of them doing Twinkle Star with a xylophone. Like, <laughs> didn't everyone do that? And um, so, yeah, with stories, I think. Everyone does it to an extent. Not everyone probably writes them down, but all kids kind of tell stories, don't they? And yeah, I think they, I think I think they do. But it's really interesting. What's interesting for me as well is is the the child who will gravitate towards language and story as opposed to towards music or as opposed towards painting. Like that was something I never did in my life. Mm. And there'll be lots of other people who said kids always paint, but I, it was always language and stories for yeah, me really rather true. rather than painted image. And yeah. the same for you. Yeah, 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 definitely. And my son like does not care for painting at all. Right. Except for yeah, like every now and again, do a few fingerprints, yeah. handprints. But generally, <laughs> it's just there's no desire there for it, um, even when it's encouraged. So that is yeah, I guess it's true. Did you um, have? Was there a moment in your kind of like schooling or your your kind of teenage years where you thought actually this writing thing is something that I quite like? to do with my life after Mm. here was it something you ever wanted to be or wanted to to Um, do with your life yeah definitely I think um I've got this thing where I'd there was a girls magazine called Bunty (laughs) 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 Uh, that was like so compared to the girls magazines of today it was just 
so ridiculously innocent and sweet. I mean, the fact that I was reading that and Danielle Steele, I don't really know. But anyway, I'd, <laughs> I entered myself into that as with this photo of like me with all my little ponies. I can't, I don't know what it was for, but it yeah. just had a little information about who you were. And yeah. it said that, what did you want to be when you grew up? And I said, actress. And I don't oh. remember wanting to be an actress when I was little. Yeah. Um, but I think it was the only, it's the only visible occupation really to do with storytelling that seems um, accessible to a wider range of people yeah, than right. writers, I guess, because yeah, right. writers are sort of, they seem more visible now, but when yeah. I was little, they were sort of not real. They yeah. just, there was a book and there was a name on the book, but yeah. that didn't mean anything to me. Whereas actors, you know, I'd done that in the school plays and you sort of seen them on TV and stuff. Um, so I think that was just my way of thinking I wanted to be a writer but that was the only way I saw it. Um, and then when I was at high school, my English and drama teachers were really influential on like my confidence and always saying, you should do this and you should try. And, yeah. Um, but I, don't, I didn't really think of it as a actual serious thing until I was like 27, probably. 20, as late as 27? Yeah. Did you, you went to university though, right? Yeah, I went to university. I did so, English so, literature. Where did you do that? King's College in London. In London, right. Yeah, did English literature and classics because actually, oh yeah, actually I wanted to be an archaeologist. So I started off doing classical archaeology at university, um, but then realised it was actually really scientific and you yeah. needed to be good at maths and stuff. What so. did you imagine it would be? <laughs> well, I did, <clears throat> I did some work experience, like archiving and yeah. um, going to some sites um, and it... I guess because I was just the work experience person, they were just showing me the highlights. Right. So I, I didn't really have to like right. do all of the graph making and yeah. all of that stuff. And so then when I realised that's what it was, quite early on during the course, um, I just asked my professor if I could change and he was very happy about that <laughs> and allowed me to change. And he's still my friend to this day. Oh, he came to good. see the show actually at Royal Court, which was really nice. Um, yeah, so he let me change and was like, yeah, maybe you should do, um, maybe you should just do classics as opposed to classical archaeology. Um, so that suited me because I've done that at college and then... Um, and, cl and classics is distinct from classical archaeology <coughs> in that you're not doing the scientific archaeology. What yeah, are you, you actually doing? You, you're reading, you're going back to reading again and the kind of finding story and culture and exactly, excavation yeah. of that. Yeah. Doing Latin, Greek, mm. um, drama. Can you speak Latin? Um, no, I was really bad at Latin. I was really good at ancient Greek, so I can do that a little bit. I can translate ancient Greek to an extent. Um, wow. Which is, yeah, what I do want to do that soon. Um, and then Latin... So that again, I, that's what you do when you do... I do want to do that soon right. as, a, as a project. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I did. I could do Latin. I had to do it to pass my exams, but it was it was just a sort of cram it in the brain and then splurge it out sort of situation right. rather than it was actually embedded in me, even though I did do Latin from when I was like 11, so... Did you... <laughs> when you were going... Did you continue to go back and uh, forth to Cairo and to Egypt? Yeah, uh, until I was about mm, 25. Right. And then um, and then just things got so busy here and yeah. um, things in Egypt got um, 
more and more difficult and yeah. so um just stopped going so regularly yeah um <clears throat> but yeah i was i was back and forth there throughout yeah. life um it's interesting to me um the the writers who position who by accidents of their biography or by choice are kind of positioned as being outsiders in the cultures they're growing up in mm. so if you're going back and forth from sutton to cairo <laughs> Is there an extent to which you're not you're you're kind of feeling as slightly on the edge of the room in both places? Did you feel at home in one more than the other? Or um, yeah, I don't know. I I yeah, I guess I never um, I never felt like anyone was at home anywhere. So maybe that was just me projecting onto other people. But I never um, I I was always surrounded by people who felt very much like they were searching for something, searching yeah. for home, searching for family, searching for some sort of belonging, whether that was the young people or the older people. Um, I think that's sort of a natural state of of humans and um, maybe particularly the ones that I'm drawn to, but <clears throat> so I didn't feel that I was any different in that. Um, I guess I just sort of had more of a tangible reason to put that feeling on that are moving around a lot but <clears throat> I never looked at it as a something negative I always in, enjoyed the feeling of being able to like navigate different spaces I found that really useful especially at university especially <laughs> doing classics at King's College was like maybe the poshest thing you could possibly do <laughs> so um <laughs> like going into that those classrooms and being like oh wow like these people are seriously posh um really made yeah i mean i don't know if it'd be any better now but in like i if i put my hand up to answer a question um no the teachers some of the teachers who weren't as nice as my professor who's still my friend would be like can you just speak more clearly because no one can understand what you're saying um so uh. Yeah, it would just be like a constant reminder of like your accent does not belong in this room. Um, so having been able to just sort of land in a place and just try and get on in that place yes. kind of helped me just get through that and not take it on board so much, even though it still made me want to leave. Like in the in my second year, I was like, I'm not sure I can, I can put up with this. But um, I think the fact that I didn't was partly to do with with that um, ease of of navigation. Yeah. Did you carry on writing when you were at Kings? Um, I can't remember. Yeah, I think I was always writing like little bits of poems and yeah. and stuff. But yeah, um, not really stories. I think I stopped writing stories probably when I was like a teenager. Right. And then just used to do poems and um, like travelogue type things more. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you act? Um, no. Oh, actually, yeah, I was in the ancient Greek play um, at King's. Which one? Uh, Hippolytus, mm -hmm. maybe, I think. Not in Greek. Yeah, it's in was it? Yeah, every year Shit. they do an ancient Greek play. Wow. <clears throat> and I was part of the chorus. Um, How was that? Yeah, it was good. It was funny. Um, <laughs> and I don't know, it's just one of those things. I don't, I don't really know what I was doing, but... Um, yeah, it's like part of their tradition. And I've just always got that strange, well, I think a lot of people do, it's just that strange attraction to ridiculous tradition as well as like absolutely hating 
ridiculous tradition. In terms of the traditions of King's College and the no, just just general just of life, life yeah. you know, like when especially when you look at the parliamentary traditions and things like that, and yeah. you're just like, oh, that's so ridiculous. But there's that also that little twinge of like, oh, but the ridiculousness of it is just so. Yeah, I really feel that nice, but it's not nice, is it? It's absolutely shit. It's not nice, but it's, it's kind of seductive, right? Yeah, exactly. But that's, I guess, yeah, why it continues. Um, do you remember that night with Pe- do you remember that Payne's Plough yeah it yeah it was Payne's Plough wasn't it I'm not yeah, wrongly um, crediting them with organising an event that they didn't organise <laughs> <laughs> but they're a good company yeah, they they'll be like thanks <laughs> happy to be in the parliamentary <laughs> memory um, I don't know if it's Payne's Plough I can't remember I can't remember either let's call it let's give it Payne's Plough because we like them yeah but do you remember that night uh, yeah I do because the because od- that was very strong for me on that night it was the oddity of being in Parliament yeah. and finding it both repellent and completely seductive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I was I was used to it at that point because I hadn't long left um, working in government when we did right. that. Right, So I was, yeah, I mean, that's how I felt for a while at the beginning, but then you just kind of get a bit used to it. But um, You yeah. didn't go, you didn't leave Kings thinking, right, I am going to be a writer, I'm going to be an actor. What did you leave think Kings thinking <coughs> you were going to do? Um, I've I've wanted to work in PR right. or um, or what else or just um, politics. Right. Yeah. PR or politics, same thing, really, isn't it? Well, storytelling. Both both <laughs> are storytelling. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. So yeah, when I was choosing the MA. Um, it was like creative media and something or yeah. war studies and then my good old professor was like please don't go to the war studies department <laughs> at King's because it's like highly like right wing and you'll hate it and they'll hate you right. so go to SOAS if you're going to go somewhere to do politics so I did went to SOAS <clears throat> which was slightly more left wing what's SOAS I don't know um, School of Oriental and African Studies is right. still part of the University of London, London but yeah. it's the more um, sort of protesty. Yeah. Um, in those in? days, you know, like smoke weed in the <laughs> in the student cafe. That was what it was really famous for, actually. <laughs> it was like random courses, um, really random courses about tiny areas of countries that no one else would ever have on their syllabus. And and originally, it was actually the college where they sent the um, colonial officers to train. So it has a much um, more conservative history than it yeah. um, people imagine it to. Yeah. yeah. Um, Did you enjoy that? Yeah, that was good. That was like, oh, wow, this is what university could have been like when you're just around like people who are a bit more um, on your level and it was really international and there was, um, yeah, like a much better vibe there of, of people who, who felt charged against injustice in a way that um, I hadn't necessarily found in the department where I was before um so yeah it was always like some sort of protests and some sort of meetings and so that was good I liked SOAS. Did you did you um uh returning to your work and reading new plays or reading plays for the first time in preparation for this? Oh no so this was um no sorry I was going to talk oh. about the search for injustice because oh. I've read read plays that I've not read before in preparation for this conversation oh, right. and and returning to and, and looking at them that that uh 
that sense of just profound structural injustice kind of really sings through them. And I'm inter- and it's interesting you said you kind of felt welcomed at SOAS for that sense of shared sense of injustice. Mm. Was it something you kind of like, were you a political thinker as a teenager? Was it some, was that sense of injustice with you like th- from throughout your life or, is it, or did you find it at SOAS? Um, yeah, no, I had it throughout throughout life. I just don't know that I was doing much about it. Right, um, right. But yeah, I was always like signed up to various um, charities and, and yeah. campaigns and whatever. But yeah. Um, yeah, there was no like social media or anything. So you kind of um, <laughs> just sort of found what you found on Newsround or, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> 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 But yeah, I think that was the first place where all of that started to come together. Social media was happening by the time I was at SOAS and um, the sort of community of of activism on small scale campaigns and then global campaigns was there and was present. Right. And so that was just exciting to be able to be part of, of all of them. And you went from there to the Ministry of Defence or was there stuff yeah. in between? Um, so I did it as part time my MA because um, right. I was having to work so um, <clears throat> when I was in my first year of the MA I also applied for the graduate fast stream scheme at right. the not at the Ministry of Defence just at the civil service Yeah. Um, and then got got that job whilst I was in my second year of doing the MA so I would do I had one day off a week to go to my MA course and then did a couple of things in the evening. Um, so, yeah, I was there whilst I was doing that. Why were you drawn to the civil service? Um, because I was doing international politics and diplomacy as my MA and so right. I'd kind of committed to that and yep. sort of thought that I would like to work in policy. Um, so policy was the area in which I thought was most likely to be a genuine, practical, helpful place to be. Right, right. Um, And I wasn't sure which area of policy, but with civil service, you don't really have to specify, like you just move around. So um, that was also appealing, that you kind of didn't have to become an expert, you could just sort right. of float. Right. And um, <laughs> I was a bit of a floater. Yeah, um, yeah and, and I think just, Searching for yeah, searching for a way to change things, probably. I'm really fascinated. You said earlier <coughs> that it wasn't until you were 27 mm. that you thought you might want to be a writer. Mm. What, what prompted that change of or that clarification? Um, well, I did the young writers course here when I was like 25. But you did that before you wanted to be a writer. Yeah, like I was still doing that just as a sort of oh, pe- I'm doing poems at open mic nights. Right. They've got characters in. People are like, why don't you do theatre? So I thought, oh well, why don't I do theatre? And I was just trying to see what was available. And I was always really good at like applying for free stuff. So anything right. that was free, I'd kind of just go and see what it was like. Um, and so the course was free. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so. I came to that and wrote some bits and it was cool but mainly I found it cool because I met loads of amazing people in my it was a um, British Muslim um, writers group specifically who was running that? Um, Ola Anna Michelle and um, Great, Ola, Mike 
Bartlett. Great. And so, yeah, there was loads of people in that particular year. Yeah. I think they only did it for a couple of years, that yeah. that specific one, but it was um, Rachel Delahaye, Zia Ahmed. Um, Good people. Yeah, yeah, really a big group of people that I had sort of still in touch with now and stuff. Yeah. Um, so that was what was most exciting about that, and obviously I learned a lot of a lot of stuff as well. But um, I didn't really enjoy, I suppose, the like mechanics side of learning about writing and like the rules. And um, I kind of just thought, oh, this probably isn't really for me. But I'm glad that I met these people. <laughs> um, but then, as part of that, I saw random. Um, which was Debbie here, Tucker yeah, Debbie Tucker yeah. Green's random, and that sort of changed, started the shift of going, oh shit, like this is actually what can be on at the theatre, so this is amazing, like these are the stories, these are the people, like I know, I know this, and also not just the stories, but the the language, the use of language, yeah. the the rhythm of it, it being like heightened but still real, and all of that stuff just mm. felt like oh, okay. This is maybe something that is a bit more serious than I thought. Um, and then, you know, I, I feel like ambivalent in a way towards competitions and prizes, but I'd always entered poetry competitions and never won any of them, mm. but I just found them, um, I found it constructive for my time to have something to aim for in oh, terms of a deadline, a deadline yeah, right. and just like something tangible that you're working towards. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that's a particularly healthy way to do things but um that's what i needed and so that's what i did and i never really got that dejected by never hearing back ever like not even getting a rejection <laughs> just never hearing back just sending them off yeah. putting the stamps on and being like oh well there goes another one yeah. um so i kind yeah. of got into that habit and found it useful and so then i i did that with a play a short play that went to soho theaters um, Westminster Prize for New Playwrights, which at the time you couldn't have had a play on or anything. It was just um, for totally new writers. And um, Was this something you'd written here at the court? No, it was after I'd done the course here, but it wasn't something that I'd written here. Um, it was something that I'd... I actually went to another free workshop at Soho Theatre for um, uh, for the prize, um, and they'd just done some few exercises, and I'd started writing it there. Yeah. And then finished it... Um, yeah, and so that one there, and that kind of validated the fact that I could do it, I suppose. Yeah. And again, like I don't think that that's good to wait for that validation, but I think that it's for a lot of people that's the only way you start to take yeah. it seriously. Yeah, is to say, oh, someone else has taken it seriously, yeah. so then I should really try and do that too, maybe. Um, and so that's that's kind of when I started to go, oh, maybe I'll try and write some more things now. Can I backpedal just a little? Yes. Um, to, so when you, when you were at SOAS, mm. you were continuing to write poetry. Mm -hmm. um, and you continued, presumably, when you were at the work in the civil service, you were writing poetry as well. Because what propelled you to do a open mic night? What What... Um, so throughout all this time, I also worked at strip clubs and or Mayfair nightclubs. Right. <laughs> the timeline of my life. It's quite... Oh, God. <laughs> I'm 
I don't know. It's always hard. There's always been a problem in relationships. People are like, oh, yeah, I just don't believe. Like, how? <laughs> what were you actually doing <laughs> in <Yeah>. 2009? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyway. So, yeah, so I'd always been working in strip clubs and um, nightclubs, and I was always writing poems about those worlds, particularly about strip clubs. Um, and so what happened with the open mic night was I was working at the Ministry of Defence I was applying for um, top secret clearance which yeah. is first of all I didn't apply to work at the Ministry of Defence I applied to work at the archives in Kew which is just the government yeah. archives place um, yeah. but they didn't have fast stream places there so there was um, a choice of like the Foreign Office or the Ministry of Defence um, or work and pensions. So <laughs> um, I chose Ministry of Defence and then it was soon, um, you know, there, there were multiple strands you could go to and I, I did want to work in Defence Intelligence, um, which is the intelligence service which is nobody really knows about it i mean it's not secret but you, you know like everyone always thinks mi5 mi6 but defense intelligence is i'm not sure now but at the time it was actually i think even bigger than each of those individually right. um and it's sort of where all the like real military intelligence stuff was was happening about um um things <laughs> so, <laughs> um and it was really really old there and that they hadn't really started to like open up recruitment in the way that mi5 yeah. and mi6 had so okay um so anyway that was where i was was hoping to go and that was kind of um that made sense to everybody but to not just to go there actually to to progress in any of the senior civil service positions in any department you need to have top secret clearance um, anyway. So I had to go through that process. Um, and for a variety of reasons, um, having an Egyptian passport, having a huge amount of debt, um, I wasn't able to get that clearance. And so, so began a period of extended, special extended leave, they call it, where you basically you're on leave and you don't get paid but you haven't left your job um and during that time I tried to get jobs in other departments which I did get those jobs in other departments um in the department of energy and climate change I got a job there as a um, renewable energy policy advisor not knowing much about renewable energy but you know learn on the job and um also at DFID department for international development but to get those jobs the MOD had to clear me in order to go to another department because I would be on loan from them oh it's all just like complicated as you can imagine with government stuff so in the end I just started doing um blogs for fashion websites because <laughs> <laughs> because at the time the internet was like I mean it wasn't new it's not, it wasn't that long that ago quite a gear change <laughs> yeah well, I'd always been interested in fashion yeah. um and these and I because I'd worked in the west end uh, like Mayfair members nightclubs right. I was just always had these contacts who worked in those sort of industries right. um, so who worked in pretty much every industry really so anything was open it was like emerald smuggling maybe you know 
fashion blogging. Why not? <laughs> with the people you're working with in the clubs? Yeah, because you just met them all, you know, like poker champion of the world. Hi, let's maybe think about that. But I wasn't good at poker. Um, and yeah, so there was just all these things. And then some of the people that I met were setting up these fashion websites and um so i just started writing for them and it was wicked because going around to all the different fashion weeks and stuff wow. and like writing about them but then they started to say to me like you know this is you're writing a report about um, um a collection and it sounds like you're writing a poem about the collection and mm. that's really nice but that's not what we want mm. and i was like oh interesting um maybe i should just write some poems and like proper poems well proper poems as in they had like a actual beginning and an end and previously for a few years I've just been doing like snippets like yeah. just writing little sentences here and there yeah um, and not really making them into a cohesive piece so I started to do that and they ended up all being about strip clubs really um, so I realized like oh, okay I got a lot of stuff to get out about strip clubs that you'd intended to write about fashion or you <laughs> so sorry. ended up accidentally this is writing so about confusing <laughs> sorry no, it's not don't apologize it's uh, not confusing it's i think it's really vibrant rather than confusing <laughs> i find it really fascinating um no because i was writing about fashion and yeah. the editors that were like friendly and lovely yeah. um and they were sort of showing me through through their eyes that they yeah. saw my writing as being very poetic, poetic. Yeah. which I'd kind of not really thought Great. of for a while. So you were drawn so towards the So they sort form. of pushed me into re renewing that sense of like, oh, actually, yeah, I do like writing Brilliant. poetry. Brilliant. And um, Brilliant. maybe I will start to do that again. Yeah. And so when I did start to do that, I was doing it about strip clubs. And you were drawn towards performing the poems rather than kind of like publishing them in mm. magazines or getting the small presses or anything. No, like the, I mean, like I said, I'd, I'd always been sending poems off to right. competitions, so the, yeah, right, not right, magazines because right, right, I didn't right, know right, really sorry. they existed. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I'd always just seen it as a as a printed form. I'd never really considered poetry as a as a performance yeah. art, um, and obviously was gaining zero traction with the competitions. Yeah. So when I was just at Southbank Centre one day, uh, meeting my friend for a drink, and um, I just heard this voice, like a girl's voice, that sounded sort of similar to mine, kind of telling this really surreal story about, I can't remember exactly what it's about, but it was like lobsters, like people on a date turning into lobsters or something. And I was like, what is this? I love this. And oh. she was wearing this amazing dress and she had this like cool blue lipstick on or something. And um, that was Laura Dockrell, who's now my friend. Um, and sort of seeing her perform that, it wasn't necessarily a poem, but it was like a poetic story. Sure. Um, sort of introduced me to a world where that happened, where there were women with working class accents, like going on a stage, taking a mic and speaking their Brilliant. work Brilliant. so once I found that out um, I thought oh maybe this is the way for me to see if anyone likes my poems seeing as yeah. nobody ever answers yeah. the, the post <laughs> yeah. um, and yeah. so so that's what I did um, and just at, at that time there was only like one or two open mic nights a week yeah. now I think there's like three or four a night right. probably in each right. individual area of London Yeah. Um, but then you kind of had to plan and like go to it and get really drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Do you enjoy performing? Um, 
oh, I was definitely couldn't do it without having a drink for about six months. Right. <laughs> so it was a really healthy time of life. <laughs> um, but then, but I did enjoy it, I think, yeah. yeah. Even though I was so nervous, I did, I did like it. Mm. Um, and doing all different characters and stuff. Because you were writing in the poetry, you were writing, you are imagining other characters' voices. Yeah, it was always um, character-based poetry, which is why people started to say, why don't you go into theatre? Because right. I guess there was a sort of tradition, no, not a tradition actually, Like the, I think the old school performance poetry had often been character-led or at least like narrative story-led. But then the, the time I started, there was a real tradition or not a tradition but there started to be a trend of it being very autobiographical right and so everything being about you the speaker this is your life yeah. even if it's slightly removed yeah. um so i wasn't really aware of any any of this um context i was just doing what i was doing mm. and um i think it stood out because it had all these characters in it at a time when other people were doing quite autobiographical stuff um even though obviously it was sort of autobiographical because it was based on worlds that I knew really well but I was just trying to look at them from different people in those worlds yeah you had your hand up then sorry Simon go on no <laughs> it was more I was very gestural when I'm kind of like yeah. thinking okay uh, and I'm thinking about and this might be my imposition I'm thinking about the writers standing on the edges of rooms that they're actually in but are imagining the experiences of the other people within those rooms so although you were in the nightclubs, mm -hmm. you know, having just recently read Dry Ice, mm -hmm. which seems to be drawn from the kind of s similar territory as the poems were from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the poems were, the poems are in Dry Ice, literally. Right. Um, so How did you write that? Tell me about the writing of that play. Um, so, yeah, when I just kept on writing more and more poems about strip clubs and then I was around more performance poets and realised there was... Um, quite a again a tradition of like performance poets making longer pieces which they would then tour around and take to Edinburgh um, I was like okay maybe I could do that and then maybe if I do that I won't need to write any more poems about bloody strip clubs because I really did want to write about other stuff but it was just like every time I'd write anything it would be like oh there we are again yep um, unconsciously so not just yeah, just like any any time I'd have like a character's voice in my head and I'd think, oh, look, here we are. We're going to like explore something about, I don't know, fishing. And then it would be like, oh, and she's fishing with her old net stockings from the strip club. <laughs> like everything. It would just always come back why to that. Why do you think that. that was? Have you thought about why that was? Um, well, it was just such a like formative part of my life. I was in strip clubs in one way or another from like 18 until 25 really yep. so yep. it kind of formed my entire outlook on um women's position in society and um and performance as well you mm. know like so so heavily influenced by the fact that the majority of women on stage that I had seen and been around were strippers um right. And so it was just trying to, I guess, just trying to distill that in a way that was um, was my own way of doing it, rather than having to talk about it um, and get get pulled in different directions by people's questions, which weren't the questions that I wanted to ask, probably. Um, so yeah, I was just delving into that non-stop. So 
ended up using those poems as a sort of springboard to then go more into a character, a specific character's life. Yeah. Um, and just sort of extended it from there, really. Right. Was it written for a particular theatre company? Was it a commission or was it uh, just written for yourself? Yeah, I've written for myself. I didn't get commissioned. Oh, I had been commissioned, actually, uh, at that point to write a sort of theatre and education piece with Contact Theatre. Right, in um, Manchester. Yeah, yeah, which was amazing. It was like very poetry-based um, about child sexual exploitation. So it was, it was um, an amazing, very difficult project. But in terms of being commissioned to write my own idea of a play... Mm. I don't think that happened until... Oh, my gosh, when did that even happen? Maybe Payne's Plough, like, doing right. with a little bit of luck. Yep. And that was really because Steph O'Driscoll, the director, was a resident there, and yeah. she was commissioned to do a play, and she wanted to work with me. Yeah, right. So it wasn't... That also wasn't a direct commission, and I'd already been writing it for the Bush in in another form. Right. So you know, me being commissioned to, to write plays is very recent sort of thing life, for yeah. me. You can, yeah. Um, so, so I just did stuff. And so yeah. Dry Ice was was written for yourself. Just tell us briefly the chronology of the life of that play, and how that affected your sense of self as a writer. Mm. You wrote it. You sent it off. Who did you send it off to, or did you? Um, so I was like, I can't remember who I... I didn't actually send it to people, but right. when I was meeting people from literary departments, I can't exactly remember, but, I mean, at the time, the only people I knew were Contact, Royal Court um, and Soho Theatre. So yeah. I assume I must have spoken to people at those places about yeah. it. And, um, yeah, there was just a sense at that time that it wasn't a... It wasn't as bigger thing as it is now to sort of have a kind of poetry based single person monologue shows right. um, in a non fringe sort of scenario right. Right. Um, right and so that's basically what everyone said was that you know we love the writing but you probably just need to do it at the fringe rather than okay. doing it at a, a, a theatre yeah. so we don't think we would have the audience etc so, you know, I wasn't offended by that. I just thought, well, you know, that's that's how it is, fine. Yeah. Let's go to the fringe. Um, so that's what I did. Yeah. And you forgive my ignorance mm. and stupidity and, 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 and eroding memory. You performed dry ice. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I Working with David it. Tremor, that's a bit mental, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> What's that about? Oh, he was married to... So, because of the Mayfair nightclub life, yeah. I'd obviously met... Met a lot of people working as a waitress at a cocktail bar and all that. And, um, <laughs> and my one of my best friends from who was also a waitress there. Um, I mean, most of my best friends now are the people who I worked with at that at yeah. that particular Mayfair nightclub. Yeah. And one of them, she met David Trimmer there, and they ended up getting married. What? Yeah. And so um, <laughs> he was always really. <laughs> He was always really supportive of um, of of my work and just was said like let me read things when you write them and so I did and then when I sent him that one he was like if you want some help directing it um, then I'd be happy to help so I was like cool was it the first time you'd worked 
with a director type figure with somebody noting you or calibrating um, your performance well i was i was going out with someone at the time who um was an actor and so he <laughs> he was really very good at calibrating my performance mm. that sounds so so dodgy but like just <laughs> in, <laughs> just in a in a, in a poetic way <laughs> um yeah, so so I'd kind of been used to working with him in that way, and then whenever I was doing um, like poetry pieces that required a lot of performance, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was the first time that someone had sort of had a long. Uh, it was the first time I'd written anything that was longer than ten minutes. So yeah, right. Yeah, and performing it presumably every night for a sustained period of time. Oh yeah, for twenty eight nights. How did you find that? Oh, just nightmare. <laughs> Absolutely hated it. And didn't do it again until history of... Yeah, right. didn't do it again for seven years. What did you hate about eight it? Eight years. Um, I just, I've, I think, like, acting... Performance is one thing, like, performance for a short period of time yep. um, to just present something as you feel it needs to be presented um, as opposed to I will embody a character for a sustained period of time right. every day doing the same thing. Yeah. It's like, in, unless you're, I don't want to say unless you're trained in it because there's obviously amazing actors who've never been trained, but yeah. for me it was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I've never, <laughs> I don't know. I just had no um, staying power for it really. I'd just start and I'd be, I'd enjoy the feeling of the words and the rhythm and, in my mouth and and getting those out into the air but then in terms of like sustaining an interest in the story as right. the character I was supposed to be playing yeah I just lost that after like 10 15 minutes in and right. I'd just be looking at people being like I mean do you care because I don't care do you care <laughs> and I'd, I'd just think like oh I just can't wait to eat and smoke <laughs> and um you know it was <laughs> It was terrible, but the thing about it where I felt like it was really interesting was that when you perform, people assume that's the thing you want to do. Right. And trying right. to get across to people that, like, I don't want to perform, like, ever, actually, again. I'm really happy to never perform, but yeah. can you just put on my work then? <laughs> can yeah. you... Because I can't afford to pay somebody to be in my work so, so that, I will be yeah. doing it until somebody else goes hey we'll produce this and we'll put other people in it who know what they're doing and enjoy what they're doing um, and and that didn't happen for a while so what would yeah you... so then I no the next year I had a play produced in Edinburgh that I wasn't in um, right and that right. was that was fine yeah which was um, that play it was called one hour only right it was like with the old Vic New Voices. Okay. And they used to do Edinburgh thing. Yeah. Um, and then the year after that, I had Clean with the Traverse. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. the year after that, I did produce my own show again, Chef, but I wasn't in that. Jada Nuka was in that. What was the first piece you wrote for uh, another performer to perform? That was the... Uh, one hour only, yeah. Yeah. But I never wrote Dry Ice necessarily thinking that I was going to perform it. That's just kind of how it worked. With with one hour only, were you? Did you? Uh, did that? F how was that experience of like watching that in rehearsal and watching that grow as not not being the performer? Did you? Mm, yeah, it was fine. <laughs> it was it was really fine. <laughs> right. And I don't love rehearsal. Right. Um, 
I kind of I love actors like I just think that what actors do is just so phenomenal and they're such I know that when they get really famous they definitely get like a bigger slice of every pie in terms of money and and opportunities and, and whatever but there's a very tiny percentage of them that are that famous so pre that amount of fame I think they're completely um, undervalued in terms of like right. their artistic contribution to um, to all the sort of performance art that that's made and, and especially to theatre especially to new writing in in mm. this well probably to all writing because without them the old writing would be really shit so you know like yeah. the, <laughs> yeah. not all of it but you know they're they're the ones that bring it to to now um and yeah. and make us want to want to watch it and so I, I just really trust them and a director as well but i just trust that the actors will do what they need to do to make it work um right. so that's not like trying to just be lazy and go yeah i can't really be bothered anymore it's it's actually i feel quite um okay with letting go earlier than a lot of right. other writers probably do yeah right so i find so that if the writer is in re yeah, yeah and if the writer's in rehearsal depending on the dynamic of the of the team if it's like a younger team i think that there's there's quite a lot of status given to a writer in this country anyway and it, and if you're in the room then they will feel that there's certain things they can't say or there's yeah. certain places they can't go with where they would otherwise maybe go and yeah. assumptions they might make that would be way more interesting than what I would tell them right. doesn't happen as much. So I try to not be there unless I have to be, really. When we spoke briefly before Christmas about, about this conversation and I kind of said that you'd written 20 plays in the last <laughs> decade, you kind of responded, I mean, I got that from doing research. <laughs> yeah, and, you, well and you responded, I know, I know, right? I do like loads of research, man. The, uh, but you responded with a certain amount of incredulity. like, But that's a yeah. figure you've heard before and you're not sure where it came from. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I guess, like, yeah, because I've done loads of little plays, so right. I suppose if they count, probably, might be. I'm not yeah. doubting your mathematical ability. No, it wasn't, ma it wasn't maths, <laughs> it was reading The Guardian. Oh, right. That's not the same as maths. <laughs> well, then, I might doubt it. Um, you can doubt The Guardian's yeah, capacity yeah. to count. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that, though, how, like, you just throw... Something gets thrown out there, and then that's it. It yeah. just gets thrown out there again and it becomes the truth but we, 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 but it's been a remarkably prolific decade like the, yeah. the teams was there was an incredible output of work if we talked about each individual play we'd be here for seven or eight hours yeah the um but i'd love to talk a little bit about chef just because yeah. i read that quite recently and i found it really beautiful um what tell me about tell me about the writing of that play in terms of what started it what the process was um, I was doing a lot of workshops in prisons. Um, I knew for a lot. For clean break or just just for clean break, a few for clean break, yeah. and then also just independently, yeah. um, like for libraries, prison libraries, yeah. they get in touch with individual poets and sort of ask them to come and do workshops. Right. Um, I knew a lot of people who'd been in prison. A lot of my family had been in prison. Spent a lot of time visiting prisons, and mm. and just thought you know that um, I should. I felt like I wanted to write about prisons in in some way, and mm. and particularly the sort of failing of of the justice system, and particularly that system on on women. Yeah. Um, 
and sort of cycles of, of violence and sort of how that just keeps the the prison prison population at a pretty high level yeah. um and i was also working at the time at my friend's restaurant um who used to be the chef at the nightclub where i worked um but then he left to open his own restaurant um which then became quite a famous restaurant for a while called Daboo and got like a Michelin star and he did amazing but um when it was first starting um nobody knew that that was going to happen but he had this way in the kitchen that I'd only seen sort of like Gordon Ramsay kind of things where everyone's like screaming their face off and swearing and smashing pots and pans mm-hmm. and so I'd go in his kitchen and it would just be this like beautiful still harmonious dance really like all the chefs knew exactly what they had to do and they just did it with like this grace and mm. and I was quite fascinated by that and the artistry that they put into every dish so I started interviewing him with the mm. sort of vague idea that I'd like to do a musical based in the kitchen about something and so he sort of agreed to all these interviews on that basis and then somewhere along the line the two worlds just merged and I was like I'm really sorry Ollie but now um <laughs> It's a, it's set in a prison, and and it's and it's all women. And he was like, right, okay, that's fine, good. Um, but he was happy, and um, yeah. So that just happens a lot, I think, with writing. Is that you? I'm interested in multiple worlds, and I think that each of those worlds is going to be a separate project or endeavor, and then somehow they just end up merging together. Um, so yeah, so I took the inspiration from his like love of food, and then. Um, just sort of gave that to um, a character that was in my head about um, who was a chef who worked in the prison, who who was an inmate in the prison, but was also the the sort of head chef there. Um, And also I'd been a poet in residence with Kate Farewell, which is um, a climate charity um, that tries to get artists to engage with climate change, as it was called then, climate crisis stuff. And... um, do art about it so we went on a trip to the lower arctic and um just sort of sailed around there on a fishing boat for a while and and that's oh that was amazing you know it was really um really quite special like i didn't think that i liked boats but (laughs) i did like that one and i also didn't (laughs) think that i had a problem with killing fish but turned out i did yeah couldn't couldn't kill a fish um <laughs> but I still eat them now so that, yeah. that was fun but anyway um yeah so so then that sort of informs a lot of her backstory and kind of her who she became um so yeah it was just loads of little different elements yeah. came together um it's a beautiful description of how you work <laughs> though, the synthesis yeah. of impulses from different places yeah and also sort of uh a, I guess the autobiographical aspects of looking at past relationships and like abusive relationships as well and so then threading that in um and I guess that's kind of what everyone who writes fiction sort of does in a way they sort of have a like basis of some autobiographical thing that they're thinking about or trying to understand and then you just add these layers on top of it is that the same whatever form you're writing in whether you're writing a libretto or an essay or a poem um no not always i'm mm, i don't know yeah maybe maybe there's always that that underlying layer of real life um 
that's then just added to, yeah, I guess. Do you enjoy writing many, many, many different forms? Um, I'm not sure. I've sort of, <laughs> I've sort of done it up till now, like right. purely on a financial basis. Sure. Um, so that was always interesting that people would say like, oh, wow, you know, it's so inspiring that you're doing all these different things. And I'm like, yeah, I'm literally doing it to get paid. Um, there wasn't this sort of like outpouring of, right. oh, I just can't wait to write an opera or anything. It was just like, <laughs> oh, this person's saying like, do you want to write me a libretto? I've got 1500 pounds. And I was like, yes, please. Yeah. Um, and that was sort of the reality of that. So, um, now that sort of I have jobs that pay more for the individual job that they are, because when you have those jobs that are like a thousand pounds, but they actually take up a huge chunk of time, which yeah. I think is a massive problem in the industry. I don't know yeah. what the answer is, but you know, in terms of like an hourly rate, it's when you really when nothing. you break that down, it's so it's it's less than minimum wage. Like when yeah, I the average national wage is what twenty eight grand. Yeah. So you got to do twenty eight jobs like that a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is impossible. <laughs> which is not on a fortnight. It's, it's yeah, it's totally impossible, yeah. especially when you um, are expected physically to be present at so many um, events or even little things like oh you know we're just going to do a little photo shoot, but then that's the whole day, and then mm. you know blah blah blah. There's all these things that add up. Um, mm. So you just end up saying yes to absolutely everything. Um, and some of those things, you know, I'm glad to have been introduced to. Um, I did like writing libretto, for example, mm. uh, but I'm not sure that I actually enjoy writing in that many different forms. Like I'd like to just be writing a play and then yeah. write a TV script and then just like that. Yeah. Do you like anthologising? Has that been inspiring to you? Yeah, that's been really, um, really stressful. <laughs> <laughs> That is so administratively draining. Mm. It's untrue. Mm. Like, the creative aspect is, is obviously interesting. I love being able to platform people that I think are not getting platformed and, yeah. and sort of give them a little bit of exposure, introduce them to readers, and, and having that, um, having the ability to do that is definitely one of the main privileges that I love of being a writer. But um, other than that, <laughs> just emailing constantly for things and like contracts and rights and invoices and PR stuff I just find it utterly like soul destroying so I probably won't be doing those for a while <laughs> where do you work um I work everywhere um because that's the other thing is that there's so many meetings. <laughs> I mean, everyone in every industry can definitely um, empathise with mm. the proliferation of meetings that are <laughs> unnecessary. Um, and so going from meeting to meeting, in between the meetings, I have to do writing. So I write, I've always written on my phone. I continue really? to write on my phone. I've got a notebook, I write in my notebook. Um, I lose my iPad all the time, so so I don't write on that anymore. Um, and when I actually have days where I can write, I write in an office space, and but it's mostly used for storage actually. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've never been able to like, oh, you know, I'll go away for for a week and just write here, for example. That's just not been part of my life. Maybe that freneticness is. Like really essential to the creativity. I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know if it is. I mean, have you got a typical working day? No, no, they're always they're always different. And actually, working here doing history of water because yeah. it was um, sort of two months of well between rehearsals and then doing the show where I had to be somewhere every day at the same time with the same group of people. Mm. Um, I don't think that freneticness and and a different schedule every day is necessarily that great for creativity. I felt super creative when I was in that in that schedule and with yeah. those people and being supported in that way um, and being comfortable um, to create with people who were all on board with the same project. Um, but it's just it's really financially and practically um, not viable to do that all the time. I really hanker after that. Mm. I'm always kind of like setting myself like little like rules. Like I'll only do meetings after four o'clock, and uh, and you know I'm, I'm going to write between like ten and four, mm-hmm. and I just break them within about twenty four hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this is like my second working day of 2020. Yeah. And my working day in 2020 is definitely going to be I'm going to walk the dog, I'm going to go and have a swim, I'm going to write from eleven till four, and not do any meetings, and it's what twelve thirty. You know, it's like day two I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, literally yeah, yeah. lasted 24 hours but there's a kind of attraction to the idea of that kind of stillness and repetition mm-hmm. and rhythm yeah. tell me about the making of um, History of Water um, or the writing of it the conceiving of it the whole process yeah it was over such a stretch period of time I, I don't really remember exactly how it came about but I knew that I wanted to write about women's stories in um, across the region of the Middle East um, that were somehow connected to water. Right. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure why or how that came about, but uh, originally I was going to develop that with Orla uh, at La Traverse, um, yeah. and then she left there, and, and so I just sort of paused it for a bit, um, and then just chatting to Vicky here at the court, and um, it's just sort of reignited the interest in in that project and so I started to write it um, and then just I don't know I just started writing it and somehow this this spy character from when I was trying to get this developed vetting clearance at uh, the MOD mm. kept kept sort of literally like barging into what I was writing um, <laughs> so what it feels like and, performance yeah. it keeps crashing into the room yeah so yeah. that was that was really how how the writing of it felt. Um, and then I said to Vicky, like, I'm really sorry. I know I told you that I was doing this show about these women in the Middle East, but what's happened is actually a show about me. And um, <laughs> and like I can't seem to decide on which way to go. And she was like, We'll just write the you version and then write the version of them and then see if we can put it together in nice. the room. But I couldn't do that either. So in the end, it just I just sort of wrote the bits that were shouting at me to be written and then I kind of jigsawed them together and then um, just did loads and loads of drafts and then in the room, once the music and stuff had got um, put to it, just made loads and loads of edits. When did the, what point did the music come in? Was that once it had been programmed or was uh, that Yeah, like that was in part? rehearsal. Right. Yeah, so yeah. from, um, we did a week of R&D before rehearsal where we just sort of... Sh- got a vibe of the music and saw yeah. what what style the music would be yeah. um and then kareem like pre-composed some of it before rehearsal but you know what it's like you don't really know it's gonna work until you put everything together sure. and so there was a lot of creating in the room during those four weeks had you written about 
Egypt before? Um, no, I'd written about the revolution or the Arab Spring a little bit um, for the NT National Theatre Connections play. Mm. Um, but no, other than that, I hadn't written about Egypt. Um, so it was it was nice to be able to do it. I, I'm going to try and do it do it a bit more. Yeah. Kind of, I'm putting in mind of like the 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 kind of archaeology student. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that was what you wanted archaeology yeah. to be instead of making fucking graphs. Kind of exactly. making sense of her history through the stories we tell about it. Yeah. yeah. Were you able to assess? Were you, were you <coughs> able to assess the work while being in it? Was being in it enjoyable, or was it frustrating? Or um, it was frustrating yeah. and awful. Um, right. <laughs> until like three weeks in. I to saw the it quite actual late. Show. I thought you were really brilliant. <laughs> I loved watching you, but I saw it in oh, the last week. Oh yeah, the last week I was loving it. The last, I mean, we were really lucky in that we had an almost six-week run, which is yeah. quite unusual, I think. And um, and if it had been a usual sort of three-week run, I probably would have come away with a, a much less positive feeling about it because it was only at three weeks that I started to go, oh, I love, I love this. Like, I love, uh. I love this show and I love doing this and yeah. it's really fun and I'm so lucky and yeah. la 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 la. Yeah. Whereas before it had just been like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Um, you know, like, why, why did I say that I would be in this show? Like, did someone else could have just done this? I don't understand. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and just like a lot, just getting into the ease of it, and and also remembering lines. You know, it sounds like a ridiculous basic thing, but remembering lines is so hard that. <laughs> When you finally know that they're completely embedded and there's no chance that you're going to forget the lines, mm. it just becomes a different thing. Because then you can, for me, like, then you can actually enjoy it and like think about the words that you're saying yeah. rather than just like, ah, get the words out before you forget yeah. them. Which is generally what I was doing before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... So yeah, do you think but you'll do it again. Do you think you'll perform again? No, no, maybe like in another seven years. Right. Maybe it's a seven-year itch thing. Yeah, and Dryas was just a one-person show, so you didn't yeah. have the the, collabor the collaborators on stage with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in terms of assessing whilst in it, that was really really hard, and I really um, that was the moments when I regretted being in it the most was when right. I couldn't I couldn't edit it properly. Right. Right. Um, right. And there was no time because we had so many multiple elements in the show, but a, a normal rehearsal period, but with um, all the added elements. So if you were just doing something that was textual, you would have that same amount of time to just yeah, go right. through the text. But right. instead, we're also trying to make at least five actual songs with like musical numbers, with movement and all of that stuff and then blah 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 blah. Mm. So um I never felt like I could properly like edit the text whilst trying to do all of that. I love the music. Yeah. It was Last amazing. time I spoke to you I said is it is, are you gonna record it? Yeah, hopefully. There, there's a we're hoping to record it, yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Let us know. You do. The um looking back on this it's interesting that we speak right on the hinge of a decade mm. and such a kind of like remarkable decade for you and the start of Another remarkable decade for you and the world. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Middle East has had a good week, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, great. <laughs> it's been brilliant. The um, um, 
I'm wondering if you identify themes or ideas that you find yourself returning to in your work, in such a body of work. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm always looking at um, violence against women in one way or another, whether that's like physically or emotionally or um, spiritually or whatever. It's definitely um, that violence in general probably mm. um and so yeah it power imbalances across life yeah. um yeah i don't I, I think i don't really do a lot of sort of analyzing of what i'm doing and why maybe that'll be what I'll do this decade <laughs> is do a little more questioning of like why am I doing something and, and, and what do I want to do with it I think one thing that I have definitely decided for this decade is that um, I feel like you get to a point obviously when you work in something for a while where you feel more confident in what you do and don't agree with or want to be part of and, and for me I am starting this decade with I will not engage with the phrase preaching to the converted, which I just think gets thrown around in theatre constantly, mm. like to a level of ridiculousness. Like I'd, I've never heard it be said in any other industry, but everything in theatre, every even people that I, I really love, um, it's just a constant thing of like, we don't want to be preaching to the converted. We want to make work that doesn't preach to the converted. But this, I feel like that term is just so strange and kind of embodies a lot of what, like why theatre battles with itself a lot because yeah. it's if, if you're going to take that analogy to its to its end point if you I don't want to be a preacher but if you're saying you are a preacher who doesn't want to preach to the converted then you are necessarily defining yourself as a missionary who's preaching to the unconverted but like who wants to be a missionary like being a missionary is very strange like why would you want to be like trying to convert your audience to a way of thinking that you have decided is the superior way of thinking or the way to enlightenment or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like I just, I don't like that. And, and I feel completely comfortable and at ease with the fact that I'm making work for people with whom I hopefully already have a semblance of solidarity with and that actually to make work to just strengthen that solidarity and to enable people to feel like Yes, I think that too. And I'm so glad that you think that and you're putting it out there for me to be galvanised about the fact that I think that. It's fucking amazing. Like, what's wrong with that? That's so good. Like, so... And th th I feel like the only reason to not do that is because people would be scared of what the power of that solidarity can actually do. So for me, even though it's not the popular opinion, I feel like my theatre that I will make over this decade will be doing exactly that the opposite of, of you know, I don't want to reach out to people who otherwise are like saying oh these people are not humans I have nothing to say to you like if you can't see the humanity in all of humans I have nothing to say to you do you know what I mean like I don't feel like that's my responsibility to make you see the human in humans like that's just beyond oh my gosh I'm going on a rant sorry. you're so not but um so yeah so I just want to I just want to make work that can that can try and like bring people who already need who already want to like 
be strengthened by solidarity and and kind of just find find a way through with the people that that see the world in the way they do. Yeah, I'll stop now. Sabrina Mafuz. <laughs> Thank you. Very much indeed. And what we do, uh, what we do at the end of each episode, um, is we have Noosh's notes, Yay. facts and questions from Anushka, who's been um, sitting there. Have you got some questions for us? Got yes. some facts. Um, okay, what's yeah. we got? I'll move out of the way. Thanks. Uh, oh yes. <laughs> Got some Sutton facts. Um, oh, good, so, that's good. We've not had facts for a while, actually. So apart from phone shop, um, Sutton always also has, because uh, I've been to it loads, the like biggest Wilco, oh, which yeah. normal people might know as Wilkinson, <coughs> whatever. Yeah. Uh, the biggest Wilco ever, which is one of the last remaining stores in Britain that still has pick and mix in the way that you remember it. Did you just like Google that, or did you actually no, know no. that from your own head? I used head? to go a lot for the pick and mix. <laughs> because I steal from the pick and mix. Well, what happened? Who doesn't? This is what I used to do <laughs> in Wilcombe Sutton. Yes. You put all the stuff in the pick and mix bag. Then when you wear it yourself, you hold your hands uh, and you only yeah, pay for like yeah, yeah. five sweets, but you got about fifty. Yeah, yeah. literally did that in my thirties. <laughs> Then, the other Sutton fact is, you can get to it in 30 minutes from London Victoria or London Bridge. Just That's fascinating. Um, number two, uh, oh yeah, Emily and Sabrina, can you remember the names of the Sweet Valley High twins? Because oh I can. My oh my gosh. Come on. Um, this is such a big thing. I know. Elizabeth. Yes. Oh. And Jessica. Yes. yes. Oh my God. Did yes. What? I've been yeah, there yeah. As well. well I don't know it's amazing. What's this? What's that? Well, you can only go there if you're working with the Ministry of Defence, but you don't always get shown it. But um, yeah, I just wondered if you'd happen yeah, to be down there. because it's built on the on a, the palace, some palace, um, and Whitehall Palace, yeah. I guess. Yeah, and um, also the who was it? That guy was beheaded there. Yeah, the James something. <laughs> Maybe they just do Excellent. it when anyone right. goes in there. Because I worked with them, with them for a brief period and they took me down to the wine cellar, What's but the there, wine was, cellar like? there wasn't like any wine in it. Oh, it's no, rubbish. it's just. I know, I was um, like, are you fucking joking? <laughs> <laughs> What's the point? Yeah, but you it's, you're going to get pissed with it. Yeah, because yeah, it's um, really old. Yeah. So they have to, there's, there's just got lots of um, things around to keep it from collapsing. Uh, but yeah, we used to have events in there all the time actually. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks very much for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed here via the bookshop, come in at Sloan Square, or on the website. Come to the theatre, come and have a look at the plays, come and have a look at the plays in the new season. The Playwrights podcast is brought to you by the Royal Court Theatre, presented by me, Simon Stevens, and produced by Anushka Warden and Emily Legg.